You are listening to Trailcast on Mountain Bike Radio. Hello, and welcome to Episode 17 of Trailcast on Mountain Bike Radio. To support Mountain Bike Radio, head over to the website at mountainbikeradio.com, look at becoming a member, or buy something from the shop over there. Or you can click on the Amazon link before you do your normal shopping there. It won't cost you anything extra, and we get a little bit of whatever you spend there. I want to start by asking your forbearance. What you're about to hear is a long-awaited and probably somewhat surprising interview with STC board member David Simon. It's also over two hours long. We don't focus the whole time on the STC or on IMBA, but I think that most of what we uh, what we cover as far as questions for for the STC versus IMBA thing, we get into probably 90% of the stuff that I see repeated over and over again. And I think the other 10% we probably covered somewhere else. So um, we're also going to get a whole lot deeper into like why the STC's goal is important um, and what we can learn as a community by the problem faced in, for instance, Marin, California. So stick with me through this. I believe that on the other side of it, you'll find it's time well spent. All right. So today I'm joined by David Simon, and he is a board member for the Sustainable Trails Coalition. And uh, David, welcome to Trailcast. Oh, thank you very much for um, for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I, you know, it's it's been uh, a wild ride um, so far, being uh, you know on the board of Sustainable Trails, and uh, when Ted and Jackson asked me to help, you know, of course I was a hundred percent in, and um, I've been. Uh, you know, uh, one of the other board members has said, you know, if we can ever share the entire history of the Sustainable Trails Coalition, um, it, it would be one of the craziest uh, stories you, you could imagine. <laughs> so it's it's been uh, it's been a really good time so far. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the Sustainable Trails Coalition. I mean, I understand that at its core, the STC is an advocacy organization, um, but uh, you know. What what really separates it from from IMBA? I mean, we've got an advocacy organization. Um, what's what's different about the Sustainable Trails Coalition? And uh, you know, it'll act like you know. I'm sure that there's somebody out there who really doesn't know that much about it. T- tell us about the Sustainable Trails Coalition as compared to the advocacy organization we know. Right. So um, the Sustainable Trails Coalition was formed as a political organization with the uh, express intent and pretty much the sole intent of lobbying, um, uh, you know, Congress and our elected officials to, um, you know, accomplish two things. Well, the first one is to end the blanket ban of uh, mountain bikes, um, you know, off-road cycling in a wilderness area. But, you know, right now the, 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 uh, charge one would would find them the trouble someone would find themselves in if you did find yourself on a bicycle in the wilderness area is you would be charged with possession of a bicycle in the wilderness and um that's that's the one thing we we seek to end is the blanket ban but we we don't seek to put 
bikes on every trail in the wilderness. Um, I've listened to your, uh, trail casts on, um, you know, your thoughts on the wilderness. And I feel the exact same way you do about the trail system and how much of it is not suitable for off-road cycling. Um, however, there are some parts of wilderness, um, areas that are very suitable for off-road cycling. So, um, what we intend to do and what our, uh, bill that we we hope to introduce this year or uh, get a sponsorship for this year, um, and start the process is to allow the local land managers, the people on the ground, um, you know, regionally and locally who know the, the appropriate trails to open and the appropriate trails to remain closed. So we're not going to ask for bicycles to be on every trail. That's, that's a complete, um, that's something that I really want to get away from because that, that usually starts the conversation off very poorly. Um, another, another part of our intent of what we hope to achieve, um, is the sustainable part. And the sustainable part is, um, you know, uh, it, it's interesting for me because once I joined Sustainable Trails, I found that many of the issues locally that affect me um, also are perfectly mirrored nationally. And um, the sustainable part of our mission is, I think, almost more important than the bicycle part. <laughs> and that is to allow reasonable access to reasonable tools to maintain trails. Um, I, I, I know you have some background uh, with trail maintenance. Um, that's uh, a major part of, of my life. Um, I, I uh, help maintain trails at um, a property, a private property, because that's one of the few places we can ride our bikes. Um, and, uh, you know, I try to contribute as much as I can to that. And, uh, the STC hopes to allow for, um, you know, specific, uh, case by case, uh, allowances for, uh, chainsaws. That's probably the most, um, would be considered maybe the most controversial part of, of our, of our goal. But, um, you know, I know that in the wilderness area, uh, less than a mile from my house, chainsaws are used all the time. And what the, uh, forest service or national park service does is they simply, um, go through the process of minimum tool. Uh, they say we can't safely maintain this trail. The minimum tool we need is a chainsaw. Now they have a gas powered chainsaw in the wilderness and it's totally authorized. It's allowed. But what we want to do is streamline that. So if someone wants to use a chainsaw instead of a cross cut saw to remove hundreds of down trees and deadfall, <laughs> um, it's going to take them, uh, you know, a short amount of time to get the authorization to use the chainsaw and hopefully they can safely and, um, efficiently maintain the trails. Now that this, the chainsaw isn't the sole focus right now. Um, wheelbarrows are not authorized in the wilderness. <laughs> Can, can can I? You're you're on a roll, and I hate to interrupt you, um, but the, you know, 
There are a couple of things that you've mentioned that I want to come back to later. You mentioned chainsaws and you mentioned private property that, that you, where you are allowed to ride. And I, yep. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to address those like later on. I want to talk in depth about some of that. Um, yep. but, but the one thing that I want to go back to is one of the first things you said. If you're in the wilderness, if you find yourself in the wilderness, with a bike, you will find yourself charged with possession of a bicycle in the wilderness. And I thought to myself, possession of a bicycle? Like this is, I mean, wow. It's it's not a dirty nuke, people. It's a freaking bike. <laughs> how, how absurd is that? Well, you know, um, uh, two of my good and dear friends have actually uh, had to go through the process of dealing with uh, possession of a bicycle in the wilderness and it isn't pretty um the not only were they uh given a very hefty fine but their bicycle was confiscated and one um uh one of my friends had to walk out after this was done and apparently it was a really bad encounter so um you know th- there's a, there is a degree of humor to it but it's also pretty serious um the law enforcement and aspect of it and the um the the amount of resources that it takes um which you know um kind of want to bring it back again to our sustainable part um there's a report by the uh general accountability office the um the branch of the government that kind of takes a look at you know what what can we do to make our government work better and um the uh, GAO focused on the long-term improvements and uh, you know, what, what can we, what can we do to help the forest service? Well, they say uh, the forest service has more miles of trail than it has been able to maintain resulting in a persistent maintenance backlog with a range of negative effects. In the year 2012, the agency reported that it, it accomplished at least some maintenance on about 37% of its 158,000 miles of trails. And that one quarter of its trail miles met the agency's standards. So um, this comes back to a core belief I have. And the core belief is, do you believe in human trails? And that is sort of the, you know, umbrella thought (laughs) to go along with hopefully this trailcast days, do you believe in human trails? Cause you know, um, I look at the wilderness society's Facebook page and wilderness watch, and there's, uh, the Backcountry horsemen. There's, there's all kinds of people who have stakeholdership in the wilderness. And unfortunately quite a few of these people, um, who probably don't get to visit wilderness areas that often say, you know, <clears throat> these wilderness areas are, uh, the last refuge of wildlife, People shouldn't even go in there. Um, you know, doesn't matter if the trails are all falling apart because I don't even want you to walk in there. And, um, you know, that that is something I just can't get behind. Um, I just can't support that. I, I, I um, people would, you know, many people who are mountain bike describe themselves also as an environmentalist. And it's a great uh it's one of the one of the worst things that happened to the off road cycling community is that um, we're not portrayed as people who are stewards of the land quite often, and um, 
you know, the reason I actually joined Sustainable Trails Coalition isn't because I selfishly want to ride uh, my bike through the wilderness and, um, you know, be a general menace. It's be, it's because I care about wilderness. Um, I I spent I was first introduced to wilderness um, by backpacking. And, you know, it was an amazing, empowering experience for me. You know, it's like a bunch of my friends were teenagers, you know, and we were basically like told we could take backpacks and go, you go that way, you know, and it was, it was, it was amazing. I, I visited the emigrant wilderness in the Sierras. Um, and it was like a profound life changing experience for me. Just, just that like, it was like, wait, we can just go anywhere we want. You know, this, this is amazing, you know, and, and all we need is this, this little permit from the, the forest service and, and off you go. I mean, there's this amazing, amazing area out there to be explored. And because of that experience, I will always come to the defense of wilderness and I will always support wilderness. Um, one of the, most ironic things about watching the, the wilderness watch Facebook page, the, uh, friends of wilderness that use all these groups is they're all really, really upset and quite scared of the recent political movement of kind of states rights and, um, you know, a very conservative, not conservation, but conservative politics of let's take back our federal lands. That really scares wilderness advocates. And it scares me too. I mean, um, you know, you, you have these oil and gas interests, you have, um, um, resource extraction interests who want to say, Hey, you know, these lands aren't allowed to be used by the people of America. We want to take them back. And it's a pretty disingenuous movement, but it's, it's misleading a lot of people. And, it, it, I, th- I really think it is a threat to wilderness. And, um, I actually interacted briefly on the Facebook page of the wilderness society and on, they were focusing on the story and I, I asked them, you know, what are you doing to engage the youth? And the answers I got were kind of, it was funny at, at some level <clears throat> and in other, other ways, it was kind of sad because it was obvious that, very few people who were, you know, social media is a blessing and a curse, but, um, you know, it was pretty obvious that, that none of these people had really thought about that. And what does that mean? It means that the next time this occurs, the next time there's a drive in our political system to take back our federal lands. Um, if we don't have an engaged youth today, in 20 or 30 years, you know, we, we could see that there's so little interest in wilderness that no one's willing to support it. I mean, we can, we can only maintain less than a third of the trail system. You know, that's that's, that's, that's an interesting point because in my experience and, and like, I grew up around horse people. I grew up around equestrians. Um, we've got hiking groups here locally. We've got mountain biking groups here locally. Um, in my experience, 
the the group that has the largest percentage participation in a willingness to come out and maintain trails among all of those people are the mountain bikers. So they're complaining about the ability to maintain trail in these areas, and they're excluding what is, in my experience, the largest volunteer maintenance base going from from using those areas. Um, I mean, comments, thoughts? Oh, well, I mean, the General Accountability Office of uh, the United States of America uh, agrees with you, not on the point of mountain bikers or super volunteers. That's been my experience as well. Um, but just to get back to the general accountability office, um, they identified numerous options to improve the forest service trail maintenance, including assessing the uh, sustainability of the trail system. So, you know, that's where the rolling dips instead of water bars come in, you know, the, the fine tuning and development that's offered cycling community has done for trail maintenance. Um, it, that stuff really works. Um, you, you know, there's there's the whole ethic of leave no trace, which I want to come back to um, because, you know, I want to talk about what I perceive the effect of Sustainable Trails Coalition would be on the wilderness system. And um, we're not going to see flow trails, jumps and berms in the wilderness. That That's just not going to happen. Um, but um, I do want to come back to that later. I, I want to keep talking about the General Accountability Office. Um, they talk about improving agency policies and procedures well, you know, there you have your uh, chainsaws and wheelbarrows are allowed. You know, I, it, it, it's really saddening to me to think about crews of young, able-bodied people working very hard with crosscut saws in um, wilderness areas in 2016. You know, well, and 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 let's let's take that even further. Let's address technology for a second with the chainsaws. I mean, the concern is, you know, it's a wilderness area. It's supposed to be like fairly quiet. Um, you know, the idea of uh, of a two such two stroke engine back there, you know, uh, running twenty thousand RPMs. It's uh, you can hear a chainsaw a long way away. But we've got some some relatively high powered and I mean effective electric chainsaws on the market now i mean is that out of the question uh of course not i mean um you know electric motors to me i think should still be regulated exactly the same as a gas-powered motor um you know that that brings us into the uh the uh, quagmire of e-bikes. Oh no, that's a whole nother conversation. We're not there yet. Leave the e-bikes alone for a minute. (laughs) Of course. I mean, can we, can we mitigate the effect of a chainsaw? Of course. Um, can we run them at certain times? Of course, you know, there's, the thing is, um, people don't realize how much management capability the forest service already has. I mean, uh, there's an area. Uh, gosh, I wish I wish I had um, thought about this before I started the, uh, t- speaking with you today. But um, I was reading about restrictions um, for bicycles in a national park. Uh, you know, they can all, groups can only depart uh, at 30 minute intervals. Only certain number of people in a group. You can only, um, t- you know, take certain fire roads in the national park with your bicycle. I mean, it was the the, the extensive requirements to get your bicycle into a national park and ride on a fire road were frankly daunting. So I'm sure that 
the chainsaw issue could be managed. I mean, there, there aren't going to be guys playing the national anthem with chainsaws every morning in, in the, the, the forest in wilderness, you know, it, that that's just not going to happen. But if you have a trail with a hundred deadfall trees across it, you know, how much money is in your budget and how, how realistically can you clear the trail? I mean, I've tried to clear, I've cleared trails with hand tools, um, human powered hand tools for a long time. Cause you know, I'm not strapping a chainsaw onto my back when I go on a bike ride, you know, that that's just not going to happen. And I know how hard it is to work with, you know, hand tools to remove anything, you know, larger than a, than a dead branch. You know, it's, uh, it's, we're, we're we're asking us an agency that already can't even maintain its existing trail system to comply with frankly, ridiculous restrictions. And look, I, I understand the need for solitude in the wilderness. I mean, the immigrant wilderness, when I was up there, um, very recently, it's the departure and arrival corridor for all the air traffic into the Bay area. And, you know, you hear the jets pass overhead starting early in the morning and it's, you know, frankly, it's something I wish I didn't have to deal with, but at the same time, um, you know, we live on planet earth and there are other humans around, you know, I mean, yeah, that, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it gets to a point where you, you have to ask yourself, you know, okay, you know, there's the ubiquitous folding saw. I, everybody that I know who's serious about maintaining trail has has got a folding saw on their camelback when they go for a ride. Uh, if they get to a tree that, that the saw will cut off the trail, uh, typically they do it. But, you know, trees fall that, that can't cut off the trail. Um, there, are, there are parks, state parks in, in this area where um, if, if you're not uh, certified and they're with a park ranger, you can't use a chainsaw. Um, you know, and, and so all of it falls back onto, if it's a big tree, it falls back onto the park rangers. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and if nobody, if, if you're listening to this and you've never used one of these, like a big two-man crosscut saw, um, you know, you can, I mean, yeah, you can cut through a tree faster than you think with one of those, but you can also wear two people out real fast with one of those. So, you know, it's one of those things, um, and, and you, you know, you have to look at it and say, sure, of course we should regulate the use of electric motors in the same way that we regulate the use of gas motors, but, when you look at, you know, how far away can you hear an electric saw? If you're a hundred yards away from an electric chainsaw, you're not going to hear it. Uh, you can be, you know, 10 miles from a chainsaw in, in the right circumstances and hear, a, and hear a gas chainsaw. So, you know, it's one of those things that, um, you know, Hey, if, if people, if people want to find solutions, there are solutions. Right. And, and I think, you know, um, just, before before we move on to anything else, I just wanted to get to the third recommendation of the General Accountability Office that is, I think, something that um, if off-road, if off-road, the community of off-road cycling, if we can't figure this out, um, we're going to lose access to trails all over North America. Um, the third recommendation is improving management of volunteers and other external resources. That's what the General Accountability Office wants the Forest Service to do is involve more volunteers in trail maintenance. And, you know, there's a huge group, uh, you know, and my 
my personal experience definitely is jives with yours. Um, I do think that, you know, cyclists could be better about being engaged with, with trail maintenance, but, but I, overall, I feel like we do do a good job. Um, you know, the, the IMBA, um, and, you know, I'd love to talk about the IMBA. I think they're a wonderful organization. They did a great survey on how much trail work do you do? And what they discovered is they're, you know, on average, people do a pretty good amount of trail maintenance, but the reason why cycling, off-road cycling does, does this amazing volunteer job overall is because there are the, these few super volunteers that, that do the, you know, the lion's share of the, of the trail work. And I really feel like the people that are doing that kind of level of volunteering, um, would love an opportunity to help the forest service, um, you know, and again, this is another issue that where locally it mirrors perfectly what's happening nationally. Um, you know, I've tried for ages to approach Marin County parks about volunteering and I will at any opportunity I can, but those opportunities are few and far between. They're highly regulated. They're very ineffective. Um, you know, the, the, the agencies all, all over North America, could be so much better if they just had slightly improved guidelines for working with volunteers. And, you know, one of the issues we face here locally is should we volunteer for an organization that does not allow bike access? Um, in Marin County, unfortunately, the uh, National Park Service are not the only organization that has a blanket ban on bikes on narrow trail. Um, the Marin Municipal Water District does as well. And they own 90% of Mount Tamalpais. Um, you know, Marin has a storied history of, you know, mountain biking. Um, and, you know, Mount Tamalpais is kind of the epicenter and not one single track in MMWD land is accessible for bicycles. And, um, you know, when, when we, when advocates in the County look at that agency, we're like, well, should we help them out? <laughs> you know, should we start trying to volunteer for them? You know, is, is it something that's going to create goodwill or is it just going to be taken for granted? And they're going to say, well, you know, we get the mountain bikers to work on the trails and they're not even allowed to work on them, you know, um, long term, uh, long term. Yeah. Th there are advocates in the County that are working with MMWD, but a lot of people, myself included, are at least philosophically troubled about, you know, waking up in the morning, kiss your wife and baby on the cheek and go spend your day volunteering for an organization that doesn't want you there. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty tough step to make. Yeah, that's that's a big leap. Um, now, I mean, you, you, you're talking about you're talking about Ambo a little bit. Um, one thing that that I see a lot in in online forums is you know this uh, this whole forget about Emba. We've got the Sustainable Trails Coalition. Um, so I have to ask this for the the benefit of the people who who um, are out there and and think that they've kind of got this either or thing going on. Is the intent now, or was the intent ever, for the Sustainable Trails Coalition to replace Emba as an advocacy organization? Absolutely not. Um, I'd, I'd actually, if we spent the majority of time 
talking about Imba today. That would be wonderful. And the only thing I'm going to say about Imba are really great things. Um, I think Imba is a great organization. Um, you know, a year or less um, before I was asked to help with the Sustainable Trails um, Coalition and be on the board, I applied to um, work for the IMBA. Um, my first experience with a sanctioned <clears throat> trail building day where, um, you know, it, it was approved by a government land manager. It wasn't on private land. That was with the IMBA. Um, I met with the IMBA trail trail care crew and, um, they did this great PowerPoint presentation. It was a whole weekend out in the, uh, Sierra foothills. And, you know, I was, <clears throat> I look at that moment as seriously a crossroads in my life. You know, um, people talk about surfing and they say, oh, yeah, surfing changed my life, you know, but the IMBA changed my life. They're a wonderful organization that the people in, in the IMBA are wonderful people doing the exact same thing the Sustainable Trails Coalition is doing. They're trying to get expanded opportunities for, for cycling. And Sustainable Trails Coalition, we're an all-volunteer organization uh, none of us have taken a penny from the donations we've gotten. Um, you know, I, I know everyone on the board feels the same way I do. We feel incredibly um, responsible for the people who were so generous and donated, frankly, so much money to us. I, I'm still surprised and um, elated by the, the the outpouring of you know everyone who has confidence in us, and you know it, it's amazing, but. My, what I would love to, you know, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to say this, you know, please don't give up on the IMBA if you feel strongly about it. Um, if you, if you don't like flow trails, please don't give up on the IMBA. You're, you're really looking at that the wrong way. Um, if you, if you don't like the, what the, where the IMBA is going with wilderness, um, you know, if sustainable trails coalition is successful, and we get local land managers at least the op the 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 option to allow off road cycling in some trails, but not all trails. If if we get this option, who do you think is going to be doing the lobbying on the ground? Do you, do you think six guys who are spread all over the Western United States who don't even get paid are going to do it? Absolutely not. The IMBA is going to do it. Who's who's building relationships with the land managers all over North America? The, the IMBA regional chapters are doing that. Um, so so what, what I hear you saying here is that the Sustainable Trails Coalition is, is trying to pass legislation that's going to allow the local land managers, and we've established this, allow local land managers to determine if and where mountain biking will be allowed on, on the on the, the property that they manage. And and so in in a sense, you're unlocking the door that that Imba has kind of been trying to, to, to move this door around, if you will, for a while, but they really don't have the resource to, to unlock it. So you're trying to unlock this door for Imba to go through and what you're what you're saying is that the established relationships already on the ground because uh, i don't care i don't care who you know okay so um the, you know the forest service has got a wilderness area and and you can't mountain bike there but you're dealing with the same forest service uh you know as you're dealing with five feet over where you've got you know ten thousand acres where you can mountain bike um 
And so you have a relationship there. And if they go, hey, there's no reason they, they, they do such a good job here. There's no reason. There's no uh, specific terrain restrictions or anything else that's going to make this wilderness area less suitable. These guys are doing a great job. Let's let them in here. And what you're saying is you're going to unlock the door and it's up to the local organizations to walk through it so much as it's up to the local land managers to decide whether or not to allow mountain biking. Yeah, I mean the the uh, the the stakeholdership, the um, the being a partner, um, you know, things that have been mentioned on your show before. Those things are incredibly important. Um, you know, our singular focus at STC is to to unlock that door, and you know, it's we. You know, I'm an IMBA member. Um, I. I wish there was a chapter here in Marin and, and I'd love to talk about that. There's no, there's, I don't think there's ever been a Marin chapter of the IMBA. Um, you know, and I don't, I'd love to talk about the, you know, this thing about the birthplace of mountain biking, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but you know, I'm a local here and you know, I've been, you know, shouting from the, the peak of Mount Tamalpais, help us, IMB, please. You know, um, 94% of the trails where I live are closed to off-road cycling. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard for me to talk about off-road cycling advocacy nationally because, I come from a place where it's so bad for the off-road cycling community that it's, it's hard for people who, who believe in the same thing I do to even wrap their head around, you know, they hear really extreme language coming from me and they say, well, gosh, you know, why are you so upset about, you know, there's plenty of places to ride. Yeah. There's 356 miles of single track in Marin County and we have access to about 30. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at, uh, I was looking at the access for bikes map. Um, there's a, it's a, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, access for bikes.com slash Marin trail map dot HTML. Uh, and you can go on there and you can, you can, and this is the important part to me, set the, the trail type on that to, to trails, which gives you single track as opposed to, to fire Roads and uh, select trail restrictions and and uh, just go down there to where it says uh, where does it say uh, uh, bikes allowed and and you've got this map and it starts out with all this trail on it and you're going wow that looks really great and then you you get to uh, where you've got you know single track and bikes allowed and all of a sudden uh, there's these you know a couple of little blue lines on there and like everything else has disappeared it's you know oh my gosh there's like there's nothing there um and and so you know for people who don't understand what the what the situation is like we hear you know oh california you know the least bike friendly place in the in the united states you know maybe in the world um like blah 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 but it, it you know if you haven't looked at something like this you can't put it into perspective i mean I want to get I want to get really into to Marin with you on, on you know on, on a 
just a whole nother, uh, you know, approach to all of this. But yeah, I mean, seriously, people go look at this map. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes and, and look at what happens and you'll understand why there are people who are so, um, vehement, passionate, enraged about this situation. Um, I, I, I couldn't, I, I don't think I could deal with, uh, living in the Moran area, but, but Dave, so the, the STC is focused on unlocking that door, as you put it. And, and, um, so, you know, my, my question then is, um, the Sustainable Trails Coalition gets this bill sponsored. Uh, the bill passes, uh, and and all of a sudden, local land managers have the option to allow mountain biking. Um, at, at what what does the STC do at that point? Um, does the STC stay around as an advocacy organization, or does does everyone well, I, you know, pack up and go home? I mean, obviously, it's not it's not that many people, but I mean, what is the what is the future for the STC? You know, once once that door is unlocked, um, you know, in all honesty, um, I feel like there's room for the STC to um, continue working on issues. Um, but at the same time, if, if we pack, if we, if we did what you said, if, if we passed a bill that at least unlocked that door of the blanket ban, um, you know, I'd be happy to, uh, pack it up and go home and redirect all the, all the passion and financial backing straight to the IMBA because they're, they're better. Honestly, they're, they're once the, if we get to this, um, point in time where, where we do have some success politically, um, the STC's job is done. We're a political organization. We're, we're not a nonprofit. If you donate money to us, you can't write it off on your taxes. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a completely different organization than, than the IMBA. It's a very streamlined, very efficient organization, <clears throat> And, you know, I, and that's another thing I, I, I want to address about the IMBA is like, well, they have paid staff and they're wasting all our donations. It's like, hang on a second. They're, they're a great organization. You need to have paid staff. I th- honestly, um, you know, the mountain bikers of Santa Cruz are one of the most successful ag- advocacy, bike advocacy organizations in, you know, in North America, I would say, and they're only two hours away from Marine County and you couldn't find two, um, the most, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of access, Santa Cruz versus Marin. There's not, I, I think that's, you know, and these, these areas are barely geographically separated. I mean, we're both arguably part of the San Francisco Bay area and it's like black and white completely different and i think one of the reasons why they have such great opportunities um you know other than the fact they have uh, different land management agencies to deal with like cal fire that they're way more open-minded about bicycles is that they have paid staff paid staff are incredibly uh, effective you know um i'm a professional pilot so i spend a lot of time sitting around in hotels and i have you know, my laptop and my phone, I can be an effective bicycle advocate kind of on someone else's dime. I mean, I'm not being utilized. I'm not flying airplanes, but, um, you know, sometimes I can't make it to that meeting. You know, I, you know, my, I can't make it to that trail day. I can't, 
I can't answer that email because my, my, uh, six week old son is crying. You know, it, there's, there's, there's a whole different level of responsibility you get to with paid staff and IMBA, they have an amazing template for bicycle access. They have an amazing group of people as far as I can tell, um, you know, with all, with all the back and forth I saw on social media, it, it, re, it was devastating for me because, because I knew if you got the board of the SDC and the board of IMBA to go on a mountain bike ride on Mount Tam and, and we stopped at the Gestalt house and all had a beer at the end of the, I, I think there would honestly be great friendships made. And to, to hear people associated with the IMBA, you know, say bad things about, um, our approach or, uh, how we do things or, or what we intend to do, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was, it was hard for me to hear. Cause I know, I know everyone on the board, um, they all have jobs. They, they all have families. They all work very hard. And, um, you know, we're really doing this purely based on passion. And, and sometimes you have to have groups like that. I mean, we're going to do this. We're going to keep doing this no matter what. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to have some infrastructure, you have to have some foundation and that's, that's, that's the IMBA. I mean, your analogy that you made on an earlier trail cast was, you know, if you have a $5,000 mountain bike, give 50 bucks to STC and give 50 bucks to the IMBA. I mean, you know, if you were betting on horses at the track, why not bet on two horses? You, you know what I mean? It's yeah, um, c- cover your bases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about basic politics here. Um, you know, one of the things, if we talk about Marin, uh, I'm sorry, I sidetracked, uh, the IMBA conversation a little bit with Marin issues. Um, but <clears throat> I'm going to do it again. Uh, you know, the, I kind of lost my train of thought, so I'm sorry about that. But, uh, coming back to the IMBA, they're a really great organization. They, they, they help for, they help forge me into a mountain bike advocate. Um, I'm, I'm passionate about off-road cycling and building trails because of the IMBA. Um, I applied to, to, uh, work for the IMBA as the, the NorCal regional director. Um, I applied for that position not that long ago. Um, I think, uh, the, the, and that the person who's currently in that position, we're really excited that they might be coming to Marin to, to talk about a chapter affiliation here in Marin. So, um, you know, it just to, to come back to this social back and forth on social media and the negative things said about the IMBA. I mean, when I hear negativity about the IMBA, it hurts me almost as much as it does with STC. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a bummer. Um, you know, and, and there was, and it, in, in all honesty, um, you know, you you said that you think it hurts mountain biking, all the stuff on social media, all the negativity, it, it did hurt. It did hurt our chances of unlocking that door. Um, you know, could, could have, could at, could have it all been handled better by both STC and NBA? Sure. You know, um, I'm sure for the IMBA, it's, it's really hard to hear like, Hey, you know, this might not be the best approach. Um, it, it, you know, and they're like, no, it's the best approach, you know, or it, you know, it, that I, I really feel like once we get caught up in that cycle of negativity, we're not, 
going anywhere. Um, if we're not, if we're not a community united, we will never achieve victory. Yes. <laughs> Score. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's, that's, um, ah, I mean, you, you've, you, you covered that so well, um, that, that, you know, again, uh, the, the United community thing, um, it's, it's about, it's about a, a group of people and, you know, people want to want to talk down about Imba because of the way that they approach this situation. But Imba has, has been for years in this situation where they, um, they didn't, you know, mountain biking has grown as a sport. And when Imba first came on the scene 20 years ago, um, 30 years ago, 20 years after, I forget now when, when Imba first came on the scene, there, there wasn't that large a, a, a community behind Emba, and and so maybe they didn't have the the clout to address you know to to, to go head on with some of this stuff. And Emba has developed a way of doing things, and that relationship building works. But that relationship building can't get around this blanket ban. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna loop all of this back around um, here in just a second. But, but you got this blanket ban. You guys are trying to to do away with the blanket ban. And and that ban is um, it's kind of reflected in a lot of ways um, in in national and, and local areas in um, you know in, in similar ways. But you you talked briefly about e bikes, and I said that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I want I want to bring that in at this point and ask you this from the STC standpoint. How does the adoption of e-bikes by by the industry and by a lot of riders affect what you're trying to do right now, or how might it affect you know what what you're trying to accomplish in the future? And I guess what, if anything, do you think that e-bikes mean for you know non wilderness access? Okay, well, um, <clears throat> here's <laughs> you know I <laughs> I said you you could ask me some tough questions, but this is. This is probably, honestly, I feel like this is the toughest. And, you know, where, where do you sit on the e-bike issue? And, the, again, the social media stuff I see about e-bikes makes me want to tear my hair out and, and gouge my eyeballs out so I never have to look at a computer screen again. Um, you know, I, I have I, – let me start on my personal feelings about e-bikes. Um, I feel like e-bikes are wonderful. Um, e e bikes as a whole, I really feel can save the planet. Um, you you can put a small solar charging station on the roof of a um, building or even a shelter for you know keeping bikes out of the rain, and people can ride their bikes all over uh, to replace cars. Um, you know that whether or not you believe in global warming there are some pretty serious issues affecting our planet and e-bikes can, can, can really help us, um, with a lot of issues. I mean, why are we fighting wars in the middle East? 
the oil. Yeah, no, no, I mean, let's, let's put to rest the idea of like global warming or not. I mean, people, um, look at it this way. Do you want to like go hook it, go hook a mask up to the tailpipe of your car and, and turn it on and breathe? Would you rather breathe that or would you rather breathe fresh air? You know, eliminate any possibility of thinking like, oh, is, you know, global warming this, global warming that. No, let's just think about fresh air, people. Um, you know, and, and if you're, if you're in a city, you have a, a couple of options. Uh, car, and, and all I can think of is trap, and I hate driving in cities. Um, I, I hate sitting in traffic. I hate the congestion, the heat, the noise. Um, and I think, you know, it, we could fit how many more bicycles down this road? And, you know, it's just, it, it's a complete, it's a complete addressing of a problem and you know with e-bikes i guess there's a whole lot less of an issue of like oh well you know there's that hill over there well guess what i mean an e-bike you know you go up that hill at a pretty good clip without putting out a whole lot of effort but that kind of comes back to like you know do you want people to be able to do that on on a piece of single track necessarily right so um so now that we've distinguished between e-bikes and an e-mountain bike um how do I feel about e-mountain bikes? Well, uh, I helped build um, one of the only flow trails in, in the Bay Area. There's two. Tamarancho. Yeah, Tamarancho. And, and um, you know, that, that was an amazing time in my life. We, we, we got some, you know, rollers, berms, and, and even a few jumps built. And, and it was an amazing, you know, people were like, well, why is that a big deal? You know, if you don't understand the background in Marin, how important that is, how important that trail to me is, um, you know, I'll just say it's one of the most important things in my life. And I was up there one day and a a wiser, more experienced gentleman than myself named um, Dutch turns up on an e-mountain bike and and I was, and I said, Oh wow, cool. Is that an e-mountain bike? He's like, yeah. And you could tell he kind of looked at the ground. Like I was going to be like, get out of here. You're cheating. You know, I was like, Hey, that's great. <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, you, you know, how young are you, sir? And, and he was in his seventies and he was having just as good a time as the, um, you know, the high school kids and the middle school kids that I, that I take up there. I mean, it was, it was literally, it, it, it was a joy to watch. It was a joy to see this guy and have him tell me that, you know, I wouldn't be up here. He was doing laps of, of, um, you know, descending, climbing back up to the top and I'd see him again and he's like, man, this is so fun. And then he'd take off and do it again. And can I ever say no to that? Absolutely not. Um, you know, I, I think that Tamarancho, um, you know, this is one of the few places where I can say, yeah, I put on my land manager hat for Tamarancho. Am I a volunteer? Yes. Am I, am I the, the chief land manager? Absolutely not. I'm a volunteer assistant at Tamarancho. Um, but what I would encourage the, uh, the Tamarancho is a Boy Scout property. What I would encourage the, the Boy Scouts to do is to get ahead of the issue, create a separate uh, permit. We have, we have day passes people can buy or year passes for the e-bikes, um, and control it. But I really think that, you know, if someone who weighs 300 pounds and the only way they can get themselves up to Camp Tamarancho and experience the joys of mountain biking, get them up there on an e-bike. Um, 
I guarantee you they'll come back to do it again. And one day you might see that guy in much better shape on a, on a bike that doesn't have pedal assist. Um, e-bikes are amazing, but, um, you know, (laughs) when, when it comes to the wilderness issue, I feel much different about e-bikes. And the only reason why is because e-bikes have a motor. That's the only reason why, um, you know, and the, the wilderness act and what STC is trying to achieve, um, and, and how those things are related is best simply stated as we are supporting human powered recreation on human trails. So the e-bike in the wilderness and only in wilderness areas, I'm sorry to say would be excluded in, in my, my, you know, if I ruled the world, that's how it would work. Um, but personally, do I feel like e-bikes and e-mountain bikes are an amazing, great tool? They're, they are. And um, can you get me to say anything bad about the bike industry? No. <laughs> um, I, I'm a little bit disappointed that, that, that these e-mountain bikes are being marketed as a mountain bike, um, that there's not a big distinction being made. I, I think that's a pretty dangerous tactic. It's very short-sighted. Um, but I think like all groups and entities, there just needs to be a little bit of education and, um, there needs to be a little bit of thought put into how we're going to market these things. Um, you know, has STC gotten much money from the bike industry? No, the number is almost zero. Um, I think, I think people who are in the industry are kind of, you know, they're not, you know, many people I've spoken to are very supportive of, of STC and I've reached out to friends in the industry. Um, and I think they're kind of waiting to see what happens because they don't want to get, uh, they don't want to become the focus and the target of this, um, um, anti cycling in the wilderness, um, kind of fundamentalist, almost temperist, temperance, uh, temperance level movement to, of purity in the wilderness. I mean, uh, they're not going to, they're, they don't want to get involved in that because it's going to affect their sales. Let's, let's touch that, the purity in the wilderness thing and, and tie this back to, um, you know, something else that you're talking about, which is human powered recreation in the wilderness. Um, in, enlighten me for a second. These people who uh, who feel like that people should stay out of the wilderness, um, you know, like they just shouldn't be there because it's the last refuge of whatever wild animal, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not trying to minimize whatever wild animal. All I'm saying is that people and, and wild animals can exist in the same place provided the people aren't destroying the habitat. And I don't think human-powered recreation, um, responsible recreation of that type is going to destroy habitat. That's my personal view. You, you can agree or disagree here in just a second. But the point, is, in my understanding, of the Wilderness Act was to provide unspoiled places for recreation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the, the greatest thing about being involved with STC is, um, you know, I've learned a lot more about the wilderness act, 
what was happening in the country historically when, when the Wilderness Act was um, passed. And, um, you know, even the way that people spoke to one another in the 1950s and 60s is much different than the way people spoke to one another now, unfortunately. Um, you know, one, this is completely un- unrelated to mountain biking, but if you watch uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower's address to the nation when he left and, and one of the things he talked about was the military industrial complex, it's, it's an amazing, amazing speech and amazing video. But one of the most amazing things about it is how he, the vocabulary that he uses <laughs> and, you know, the implied intelligence of the American public at the time in the 1950s. And, you know, why am I talking about that? Well, there's one word that's really been misused and misconstrued, and that's mechanization. Um, you know, one of the reasons for the Wilderness Act is, you know, uh, there was a global um, Cold War between two different economic philosophies, basically. And one of the things that people noticed <clears throat> after World War II is that there was a growing mechanization of farming, of, of daily life. And what, is that, what did that really mean? It, you know, w- when you talk about mechanization, what did people think about what are people referring to? Well, I would say, you know, the Eisenhower thing brings us back to, the, you know, the fact that there's the me- mechanized divisions of the army. What does that mean? Well, it means you get into a tank, you don't have to walk. You, you know, um, if you have the mechanization of farming, what does that mean? Oh, you get in a tractor, you don't have oxen pull your, your, uh, your plow. Um, you know, the mechanization and the way it's used by, by the opponents of cycling is saying, well, you're on a machine, it's mechanized transport. You know, in 1966, um, they, and this actually remains in effect today, the Forest Service interpreted the act as allowing human power transport, even if it is mechanically insisted, assisted. Sorry, The regulation provides... Um, no use of motor vehicles, motorized equipment, motorboats, or other forms of mechanical transport. And defines mechanical transport herein is used shall include any contrivance which travels over ground, snow, water, wheels, tracks, or skids, or by flotation, and is propelled by a non-living power source. Uh, so so. That, that right. <laughs> So a non-living power source, and, th- and that gets us back to the e-mountain e bikes, e-mountain bikes. Well, you have a non-living power source. I'm sorry, but, you know, in 1966, they, they you know, that's why they said any contrivance, track skids, flotation. I mean, they were just like, if it has a motor, no. Right. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty thorough, um, mm-hmm. and 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 I think I think it's relatively clear, and and it goes back to the argument that I made, um, and and I'm sure that that there are people who like the tops of their heads completely blew off when I said this, but you know, a a, a mountain bike, a bike is a machine, but. A rowboat is also a machine because the simplest form of machine is a lever, and that's what you. If you've got a pivot point, that orlock, you know, it's 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 a lever, and that makes it a machine. Um, but 
it's a human-powered machine if you've got a person sitting there pulling on the oars. It's a human-powered machine if you've got a person that's, you know, making everything go around on the bike. So, uh, you know, it, I, I, feel like, I feel like it was pretty well covered up until there was actually specific wording added that said, no mountain bikes. And that's, and that's something that people um, who try to exclude cycling from the wilderness do not ever admit to that, you know, the first, you know, from 1964 to 1977, there was no express, there was nothing specific that prevented you from riding a bike in the wilderness. And, and that's actually a resource um, I haven't pointed out to you yet, but um, just talk about it now. One of the most anti-cycling groups in Marin County locally is the Marin Horse Council. Um, they're they're absolutely awful about their views on cycling, and um, you know they they post all their newsletters online, and I read them to see you know what's coming down. You know how are they going to smash us over the head this month? Um, but they have historically put all their, you know, someone with a scanner went through and scanned every single one of their old printed newsletters, including the oldest one from 1973. And it's still on their website. It's amazing. But on page five of the one, one uh, of their first ever newsletter, they talk about how the wilderness area in Point Reyes is going to be expanded and how hikers Equestrians and cyclists are um, are all working together to make sure that it doesn't affect access to human trails. Um, and you know, to me, it's 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 a really significant document because it shows that in 1973 in Marin County, all the groups were working together for trail access. Um, and this this is this is why I joined STC and and you know, kind of. I hope the central point of our talk going forward is that, you know, this blanket ban on bikes in the wilderness, you know, people's like, oh, well, it's only 2.5% of the land in North America and it's not that big of a deal. And it's, it's the one last place you bikers can't go. And why can't you just respect that? And well, it, it has a profound effect every time someone goes, okay, well, how are we going to protect this local county park? Well, um, you know, it's the most valuable thing in our county, um, you know, in XYZ County, let's say Springfield from the show, the Simpsons, they, they want to, um, make their little mountain, a, uh, a park and they want to value the wildlife. They crack open the forest service handbook. Oh, let's ban bikes. You know, the, the, the crown jewel of conservation is wilderness. It's the crown jewel. It's, it's the most important thing that's ever been done for conservation. And we are not part of it as off-road cyclists. And as long as we're not, we are always going to get kicked to the curb. We're, we're going to be the last guy in the room. You know, um, I haven't expanded on this too much, but personally, I believe all the issues facing Marin eventually will come to fruition everywhere in North America once the population pressure reaches the point that it has here. Sure. Uh, let's let's open the door to Marin here because I know like okay people if you haven't figured it out yet Dave is from Marin, California. Um, and if you aren't familiar with some of the issues in Marin, California with, with mountain bike access, um, 
well, guess what? I mean, it, okay, it's a fairly populated area. There's there's what we would call a lot of population pressure and a lot of development pressure, um, and, and and most of the country isn't really faced with that kind of pressure and that kind of uh, space constraint. But when you, you will eventually get to a point where um, what you feel like is undeveloped and what needs to be protected is undeveloped um, can even come down to um, old man, you know, old man brown dies and he's got a, he's got a thousand acre farm and it doesn't matter that it's got barns on it and that part of the farm road going in there was paved so that he could get cattle trucks in and out. Um, it just happens to be that that's now kind of in the middle of town or in the middle of the suburbs and everybody wants to protect it because you know there's some sections of woods there and some some open meadow that if you if you let it grow you know some wildflowers are going to come up there and and so yeah let's we should make that a wilderness area so that it's protected um have i covered marin pretty well there as far as what it feels like david is that uh it's you know unfortunately it's a bit worse um so in 1977, the Philip P. Burton Wilderness was designated in the Point Reyes um, shoreline or Point Reyes National Recreation Area. It's also a national seashore, and it's also a wildlife conservation area. So originally, when Point Reyes was designated as a park, it was divided um, – into you know kind of separate zones one was more of a wilderness one was more where they would continue to allow agriculture aquaculture um you know it was it was they were trying to say hey you know we can we can conserve but we can still allow for there to be a community for there to be um you know uh food sourcing for the bay area um Point Reyes, part of the thinking behind setting up a recreation area just outside of San Francisco was that people wouldn't have to drive all the way up to Lake Tahoe to recreate. Um, that that this you know this could be um, a great resource for people to get out during the day, whether it be on the bike or on a horse or um, by foot. You know, it, it's a great resource, and um, there's also a uh, another agency closely related to the national parks, um, different name, uh, of, of, for who manages the land of the golden gate national recreation area. Um, you know, and what's happening now. So now that was in 1977 when the wilderness was designated in the Philip P. Burton. Um, now they've, they've kicked out the oyster farm, um, they're they're moving to kick out all of the dairy ranchers uh, this year. That uh, um, all the environmental organizations that are trying to kick mountain biking to the curb are now telling the dairy ranchers, "You got to get out." So, um, and that's a real lawsuit that's happening right now. Um, you know the the problem with stretching the definition of wilderness to include former dairies. Um, you know, there's trails, uh, you know, there's 125 miles of trail right behind my house, like a mile away. Um, it's all off limits to bikes and much of it has uh, tar seal road seal. Um, the, they're 12 foot wide trails that have, um, you know, kind of a buildup of loam 
on either side of the pavement to, to, um, make it seem like it's a trail, but, you know, a few minutes kicking the loam out of the way, you start finding the tar seal again. And this was an area that wasn't really intended for there to be, um, a massive, um, conservation, you know, a place where, you know, people can't go because we have to protect the, the wild animals. You know, this was supposed to be for recreation and, if it can get that bad here, um, you know, it, you know, we're, we're, we've reached the point in the Bay area where, uh, if you want to rent a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco, you're going to have to spend 3,500 bucks, uh, a month. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very, very, um, impacted area in terms of population pressure. You're not going to see this kind of population pressure in Utah for a long, long time. But eventually, if things continue the way they are, you will. And um, what does it mean that the Wilderness Act excludes bikes? Well, in 1984, when the Forest Service finally came down with their final ruling that banned bikes completely, um, you know, the, the county parks in Marin, the Marin Municipal Water District uh, got together uh, along with the Sierra club and all the other people that were pushing to kick bikes out of the wilderness nationally and said, Hey, we want to conserve our parkland and our water district land at the same level as here, as that they've done in point Reyes. bikes weren't even allowed on the fire roads on Mount Tam. And unfortunately it was in the infancy of the commercialization of off-road cycling. And, um, we've been, working very, very hard to get the little access we do. Um, if you do look at the access for bikes, access for bikes is a great organization. Um, I try to make as many of their meetings as I can. I'm good friends with the president Vernon Huffman. It's a really, really cool organization. Um, but, but one of the things they did is when they did their trail survey, they say the access level is about 15%. And I was like, Hey, you know, it's, it's not that much, you know, and, and they're kind of like, well, you know, we don't, we don't want to say it's just 6% because they feel like they're always going to be stuck there. Um, they say there's 60 miles of trail in, in Marin County. And, you know, I've done an extensive amount of cycling here. I grew up here. I've almost lived here my whole life. I've been able to, I'm very fortunate. I've been able to travel all over the world um, live all over the world with, with my job as a professional pilot. But, um, I've spent a lot of time riding my bike here and, um, yeah, I know, I know the trails very well and, you know, we can go, I could go back and forth all day with, with someone with the GIS software, but, you know, we're, we're at 94%, uh, ban on, on cycling on narrow trails. And, um, you know, I, I feel that what has, what has happened in Marin and what is happening in Marin, um, really is going to affect the rest of the country going forward. As long as we, as long as we let it fester, um, because every environmental organization, the radical arm of that organization is in Marin County, uh, the Audubon society. The Audubon Society 
has a, a member, uh, you know, the head of the Marin Audubon chapter, um, you know, just got up at our latest county parks meeting and said, although the northern spotted owls are doing very well, uh, we want them treated as an endangered species. So this 1.4 miles of multi-use trail, uh, we're going to sue you because, because, you know, you're building trails for multi-use and somehow trails for multi-use, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, that, that's what she said, <clears throat> but somehow trails for multi-use cause the spotted owl to be wiped out, but trails for hiking and horse riding only don't. I mean, that's a really big leap to make in logic. And it's, uh, you know, um, that what, you know, the, the 1.4 miles of trail that we're adding is very significant because that was a process that was started in 2009 and it was dragged out, um, unbelievably until the point we finally, we finally got some scraps. <clears throat> the cycling community finally got a couple scraps and, you know, it's causing this humongous backlash. Uh, the backlash is, is incredible. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about, um, with these environmental organizations is how good they are. They're amazing. They, they, they come up with these amazing force multipliers, uh, you know, that make them so effective. Um, so for example, uh, the, you know, Audubon Society, the Marine Conservation League, the Marine Horse Council, um, they found themselves at a point where they were sounding ridiculous even to their own members when it came to bikes. Um, so what did they do? The six most radical members of all those organizations formed a group called the Foot People. Now, the Foot People uh, believe <laughs> that... Um, you know, uh, it's, so we have a county park system here in Marin County and the mission of the county park system is preservation and recreation. Now, if the, if the mission statement of Marin County parks was simply preservation, you know, I wouldn't have a lot of, uh, um, I wouldn't be able to make a stand for recreation, but these, um, these people, the foot people on their mission statement, who we are, they say, uh, we believe that recreational uses should be subordinate to and effectively managed for the protection of natural resources. That's one of the most dangerous sentences I've ever read in my whole life. Um, so they're saying, even though the mission statement of parks is to provide recreation, we feel like it should be subordinate to preservation. It sounds fairly innocuous, but, um, you know, th this has profound implications for everyone. Um, the fact that six people can get together and say, without any administrative change or any government change, we're just going to take recreation kind of out of this picture. Um, that's, that's, it's not only amazing, but, um, that they're trying to pull this off, but, um, it, it should be something that the IMBA should be watching. Um, it should be something that, that, um, anyone who values access to human trails should be watching as well. And, um, you know, I feel like I haven't done the best job of, you know, tying it all together, how, 
how the, the, the national scene really mirrors the scene here in, in Marin County. Um, but, um, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's pretty obvious to me, um, that, you know, once, once your city or town changes to the point where you have similar population pressure issues as we do here in Marin, um, you're going to have these people come out of the woodwork who, who don't believe in your access to ride your, your right to access public land with a bicycle. And, um, you better have your ducks in a row when you, when you have a showdown with these people, because again, and I feel like a lot of this comes back to the bicycle ban, the blanket ban on bikes in the wilderness. Um, they're, they're going to have very compelling reasons to kick you off of your, of your trails. Um, they're going to, they're going to create alliances with every single environmental organization in your area. And they're going to work tirelessly to kick you off the trails. And right Um, now, right now, it sounds like the most compelling reason that conservationists have to, to, to kick somebody off of their trail is that, that, you know, as you said, sort of the, the highest law in the land when it comes to conservation is the Wilderness Act. And so, you know, they, they kind of hold that up and they go, well, the Wilderness Act is the ultimate in conservation. And if we're doing conservation, if we're trying to protect the spotted owl, then, um, you know, let's let's ban bikes like that's the solution that's how we're going to protect them ban bikes never mind the ddt ban the bikes right i mean you know if i could could you know just as i i I mean i don't feel it's necessary but i you know i try tried throwing out the olive branch to the imba if if i could get the same opportunity to to throw the uh, olive branch to the wilderness society i would say to them hey you know there are much bigger issues facing our planet today um, than there are, uh, you know, issues with mountain bikes, um, issues with off-road cycling. And, you know, please think of the future. Please think of a way to engage the youth because we need the youth to maintain the passion for preserving these wild lands. I mean, we've already seen moves presently right now to take back public land, give it back to state control, um, take back for perfect, uh, federally protected wilderness. And, um, that's happening now. Um, you know, it's not going to stop happening either. So we, we need to engage everyone we can to protect wilderness and excluding, excluding people from wilderness is, is not, that's not how you're going to, keep the wilderness movement going. It's, it's very short sighted. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, just bring up one issue in particular, you know, I'm a surfer, um, you know, the great barrier reef in the last, I think year, um, half of the great barrier reef is bleached out. Um, 90% of the coral are dead. Um, that, that was one of the largest living, I think it's one of the largest, you know, cause all the corals connected, it was the largest living organism, I think on earth, you know, and it's dying. There's some big issues facing our planet. There's going to be some big issues for our children. You know, um, I've got almost as much personal connection to the ocean, maybe more than I do for trails. And 
I'm not a scientist, but if our ocean dies, you know, humanity's next. I guarantee it. And, you know, <clears throat> for the Wilderness Society, the Sierra Club, um, the, the Audubon Society, for them to completely focus on mountain bikes, um, it, it's, it's kind of, it's lunacy, basically. I mean, they're, they're really ignoring, they're treating the symptoms of a much bigger problem by trying to eliminate off-road cycling. And, you know, the, the end game, it's going to be, you know, we're going to be, uh, looking at the <clears throat> huge issues facing the in- environment in the next hundred years. And, you know, I imagine, uh, you know, Barbara Salzman, she's the head of the Marine Audubon Society. She's the one that's threatening to sue over the spotted owls. Um, Connie Berto and the Marine Conservation League, Nona Dennis, all these characters, um, you know, and they're, like I said, there's only six of them, but I imagine on their deathbed, you know, and they're looking at their grandchildren and saying, well, you know, I might, we, we never really, um, addressed, you know, global warming or the fact that the oceans are dying, but man, we did a great job keeping the bikes off the trails. You know, it's like, is that what you want your legacy to be? I I mean, um, I know there's other impacts that, you know, and, and the Sierra club does great work. You know, I, I grew up in a very liberal part of the country. Um, I, I believe in the environment. I'm, I'm an environmentalist. I, I was very lucky. I grew up in, um, uh, very close to the Audubon house where, uh, Mrs. Twilliger, Twilliger was, um, you know, and, um, she, she wanted kids. She wanted kids to come to the Audubon house. And and I was one of those kids. I got to meet Mrs. Twilliger, you know, and when she met Ronald Reagan and, and she was awarded for reaching out to the youth. Um, I honestly, you know, having met Mrs. Twilliger, I, she'd be, she's spinning in her grave right now. You know, she's like, why are we excluding? Why, why are we excluding the the people I was trying to reach out to? You know, why are we, why are we building a wall, um, between, you know, um, the, the way I see it. And I hate to sound like someone who, who makes uh, differences between the generations. Cause, cause I really don't, but you really have the baby boomers at the moment, at the at the helm of these organizations and they're they're just they're building a wall between themselves and the future you know um if you've ever hung around a 12 year old with an iphone there are very few things you can do to make that person interested in the outside world and one of them is off-road cycling um you know i've spent a great deal of time dealing with the youth um uh, being a mentor coach for, um, a, uh, U- um, USA cycling team and a mentor coach for some of the, uh, high school teams in the County. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time around, uh, you know, teenagers, basically mostly teenagers. And, um, it's, it's amazing to see how different they are after they ride, they get to ride a single track. You know, the first time you take a kid on a single track and you know, they look back at you like, what just happened? That, that was the most amazing thing I've ever done. Can we do that again? You know, and, (laughs) and, um, you know, I've seen, um, kids who have learning disabilities, autism issues, um, 
you know, difficulty concentrating, you know, they're, they're in trouble at school a lot. Their grades are failing. You put them on a bike and two hours later you have a different human being. And, you know, the combination of exercise, um, concentration, um, being in the outdoors is, is something that, that is very, very difficult to, to, um, replicate any other way. You know, you, you know, not a lot of people can afford to jump on a horse in, in a, you know, you can imagine how much it costs to board a horse where a single bedroom apartment is 3,500 bucks a month. So that's the reason why I think less than 1% of the users in the County are equestrians. Um, and they're primarily very wealthy people, but, you know, um, off-road cycling is a, is a great way to involve minorities, to involve, um, uh, people who don't have the money to, uh, drive to the trailhead. Um, you know, and these are the people that we need to extend, we need to, to, um, extend, opportunities to them. Right. Uh, I, I like to, I mean, you say off-road cycling is very accessible and, and talk about boarding a horse. And, and it's like, I like to tell people, um, you know, the difference between my mountain bike and a horse is when I put my mountain bike in the garage, I don't have to feed it. Um, it, it you know, I might have to like lube the chain. Um, but the, the, you know, this whole thing about kids on trails. I mean, when I was growing up, um, we, you know, you could go in, in pretty much any neighborhood and, and this was like solid East coast, like Newport news, Virginia area. So you got, you know, Naval shipyard there. Um, you know, you just down the road from Norfolk, you got, you know, Virginia beach, but you could go to just about any neighborhood in that area. And there were, um, you know, there were like buffer zones, like great big patches of woods, um, in between the neighborhoods where, you know, there were all kinds of trails where people had, had worn a path, you know, walking back and forth between these neighborhoods or, you know, Lord forbid, uh, you know, riding kids riding their BMX bikes back and forth to, you know, to get to their friend's house or whatever. And, uh, and, and I mean, that's what we used to do. We used to go ride around. You see the, uh, you know, how, how we knew where everyone was before social media, you know, you, and this is a picture yeah. of all of the bikes out in front of a house, right in, in the yard there. And, um, and, and I think, you know, and that was like, I can't imagine not growing up that way. Uh, but the, the situation today is, you know, I go back to those same neighborhoods and those woods are gone. It's all houses, you know, like where, where are they going to ride? You know, they're going to ride in the streets. You know, if there's not a greenway nearby or something, there's, there's nothing there for them. So, um, th- that's like, uh, yeah, I mean, we got to make this accessible, you know, in that union you know, yes, a bike is a lot cheaper than a horse. Okay. Um, but it's got to be accessible in terms of like having a place to ride that bike too. And you talk about driving to the trailhead and that's the point that I've made again and again, you know, if you're live where I am, you know, I, 20 minutes away, I've got a trail. It's not really suitable for beginners. Um, then, you know, 40 minutes away, there's another trail, uh, 45 minutes, I get another trail. But if you're a family 
and you're not really, you know, like I'm into riding. I don't have a problem with taking my kids an hour away to a trail where I know the trail and I can go, hey, you guys can ride this section here and I can ride with them, uh, you know, and and know that that it's a trail that they can that they can deal with um you know if if one of these parents drives to a trail that's an hour away and doesn't know where that part of the trail is and they end up you know on on the most technical trail out there by chance that's a bad experience that's not helping um and and so yeah we need like trails in every neighborhood we need to be able to get to a trail just a little ways down the road you know so that you can get on your bike ride a little ways you know down the sidewalk and and dump out onto a greenway at worst that leads to you know a piece of single track right Uh, that's accessibility that's making it accessible to the youth and that's the only way in my opinion you're going to get kids out from in front of xboxes and flat screen tvs Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, um, it's, thank you for bringing that up. Cause it, it gave me a little bit more focus on, um, this idea I've been thinking about, about how Marin County mirrors the problems we face nationally. Um, in 2008, when the mortgage crisis hit all of North America, um, California was hit especially hard. What was the first thing on the chopping block? Parks. Yep, state parks. So uh, in state parks, we've had um, in Marin County, so we have five land management agencies in in Marin County or so. There's several smaller ones in addition to that. But one of them is California State Parks. There's uh, the state park on Mount Tamalpais, um, very, very limited off-road cycling access, almost none. Uh, Olin Pauly State Park, um, former party spot of the Grateful Dead, uh, absolutely no bikes whatsoever. Get out of here. That I mean, the, it's it's kind of crazy how exclusive that state park is. It's it's uh, the head office for the county is there, and I've always scratched my head when it came to Olin Poly. Um, but I'm getting on a sidetrack. Um, China Camp State Park is the the third state park, and it does have relatively open. Uh, access policy for bicycles. Well, guess which park was on the chopping block? China Camp. Um, that is ten of the thirty legal bike, you know, legal trail miles for bikes in the county. And all of a sudden, it was like, yeah, the venture capitalist who uh, lives in Silicon Valley, he might build his house there now. You know, um, who knows what's going to happen? Fortunately, a group of volunteers known as the Friends of China Camp stepped in. And they've largely maintained the status quo. Um, They haven't worked too hard at eradicating some of the social trails, which is good. Um, That that give cycling a little additional boost from trail miles. Um, But, you know, again, this issue mirrors exactly what's happening nationally. Uh, If we face another Great Depression, something like what happened in the 1930s, yeah, I I really see some of the you know if if the general accountability office is saying we can only tr- maintain a quarter of the trails in wilderness and national parks, um, there's already a huge issue there. It's a fragile system, and an economic stressor uh, is going to create a backlash, and you're going to see um, you're going to see wilderness on on 
the chopping block in our in our life. We're going to see that in our lifetime. The next time we're hit with a giant economic um, crisis, uh, I'm scared of what's going to happen to to federal lands. Um, and you know, the the whole the, bring bring us back to the state park issue. When state parks were on the chopping block, it triggered a lot of things. One of the things it triggered was uh, you know a very wasteful process, but a study on how do we get more people into the parks because the parks were underattended and underfunded just like wilderness. And that's one of the reasons why they were on the chopping block. So how can we fix that? So the, they developed a system of meetings called parks forward. And I went to the parks forward meeting and it, it was amazing. They had all these different bullet points. So, you know, we want to involve the youth. We want to get the youth into the parks. We want to involve minorities. We want people to exercise. We want people to be healthy. And I'm like, well, why don't you allow mountain biking? <laughs> yeah, you got to be kidding me. The answer is staring you in the face. But all the same people from the Marine Conservation League, from the foot people, from the Marine Horse Council, they were all there at that meeting, too. And they knew what was happening. They, they realized what was going on. They realized that, that they, that they had contributed to a weakness in our park system. And what were they doing? They were circling the wagons. They were there. Um, I, I made a suggestion that we develop trails using the IMBA trail standards. I recommended that we, um, include practice areas for the high school teams, uh, the national, national interscholastic, uh, cycling Association, NICA, has done an amazing job. Uh, there's hundreds of new cyclists, um, thousands just in California probably, just from that program, and you know th- they're created every year. More kids on bikes is their motto. Um, you know, let's, let's embrace this movement, get them into the state parks. Uh, hey, let them run a race every once in a while. Right now, they don't allow... They don't allow events in state parks. So, so what, you know, no wonder there's a problem with the budget. Um, you know, one of the things I've talked with private and public land managers about <clears throat> is the fact I spend $350, three, and it's $370 now, every year for a season pass for the bike park at, at North Star at Tahoe. Um, that's a four-hour drive away. Uh, I, I do fairly well as a professional pilot. I own a, a home in Marin County. Would I pay a lot of money for a, a state parks pass that let me ride on all the trails? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, that could be an incredible, um, revenue generator for parks and it, it's completely ignored. Um, while I'm talking about state parks in California, one of the things I wanted to address today, and I realize I've, I'm all over the map where we're uh, we're pretty good good amount of talking today, but um, one of the things I did want to address um, that I have heard on your show um, is uh, the NEPA, the um, the national um, national level environmental process for federal lands because I've I've heard it talked about um, on your show and I think there's some pretty big misconceptions about um, what happens if you know we open that door what will, you know, occur. And, um, fortunately we've already been down this road in Marin County with state parks. So, um, I don't know if I can talk about that or if you think that's a good thing to no, go, go, go for it because here's, here's the thing. These issues, 
affect advocacy nationwide. And, and, you know, there, there are people, you know, yeah, like you said, people who, who, you know, go, well, you know, the worst thing about the Sustainable Trails Coalition trying to, trying to push this amendment to the Wilderness Act through is, you know, we'll get this resource extraction thing piggybacked on it and, and that's just going to destroy the whole thing. So oh, no, right. by all means, go for it. Okay. First of all, uh, am I a plan for the oil and gas industry? Uh, no. <laughs> Could I use a little bit of oil and gas industry money? Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to take it. I, I promise you that. Um, have I gotten calls from uh, ExxonMobil saying, hey, Dave, you want to you want to ride on our Gulfstream to, you know, come talk to us um, about, you know, uh, the sustainable trails? No. <laughs> no, they uh, there's zero. We've gotten zero contact, zero interest from any resource extraction group. Um, all we would be doing is returning the Wilderness Act to its state between 1981 and 1984, uh, where they did allow local land managers to decide uh, if off-road cycling should be permitted. So um, thank you for allowing me to, to address that. There's absolutely no truth to it. What I did want to talk about is NEPA, because I have heard on your show that we would also uh, – destroy or rewrite NEPA, and there would be some big issues with that. Um, well, first of all, what is NEPA? It's a great thing to, to do your own research on. And I, 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 you know, the one thing I think is great about sustainable trails is we're starting to get people engaged. Um, you know, if you've managed to listen this long into the podcast, um, you know, please get out your computer and do a little research on your own about NEPA. But what I can talk about are two examples of how NEPA has affected the cycling community um, presently. Um, one I don't know much about is the uh, um, uh, recent uh, use of NEPA in Moab in Utah. Um, the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance is uh, suing the uh, BLM, um, and this happened right at the end of last year, or maybe it's going on this year. But this, this, what, what did they do? Uh, the BLM said, "Hey, we want to provide this off-road cycling with a with a different, you know." And this is a great example because it's all federal. We want to provide them with a, a new route to get from the Porcupine Rim back to town because people get in over their heads. They need a way to to uh, just descend back down to town, and we're tired of rescuing people from you know other parts of the country who have no idea what they're doing. So let's let uh, the trail association build a new trail um, that helps with that. So the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance said, "Hey, where you want to put this trail is um, wilderness quality land. So is it managed like a wilderness? No." But it has wilderness quality lands. So um, the BLM said, well, there's no scientific controversy over the nature of the impacts. The BLM says there are no environmental impacts that affect this area. So how are they using NEPA? How is the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance using NEPA to um, halt this trail? Well, they're saying that they're saying that the trail creates a visual impact. Um, they can't point to an environmental 
uh, reason other than, you know, the trail will be unsightly. So, uh, to, so they're saying to meet NEPA's hard look standard, the BLM must conduct a legitimate visual resource analysis using observation points that are relative to the proposed project. So they're saying that <clears throat> they need to observe where the trail is going to be and see if it does create a visual impact on the landscape. We're, we're talking about a trail, uh, a narrow trail, you know, likely built mostly by hand. I mean, I've seen the guys in uh, in Utah um, working uh, Captain Ahab Trail. They did this great uh, time lapse, and they use a come along to to move giant boulders out of the slightly out of the way and create just enough tread width to, for bikes. Um, you know, is NEPA being abused by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance? Of course it is. Um, why do I know that <clears throat> this, th- that of course they would abuse this? Um, because this happened in, in Marin County as well. Now it's not a federal example, but the state parks of California were given a mandate to open more opportunities to the cycling community. They identified four trails in Marin County where they could do that. And unfortunately, they picked the wrong one to start the program. They picked the trail that unfortunately is part of a drainage where there are steelhead and salmon. Uh, sam, you know, salmon. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. You're, spawning salmon. <laughs> spawning salmon. Yeah, steelhead. You, you're going to have a bad time. So <clears throat> what happened was the same group of people in the Marine Conservation League, this was in 2009, they sued state parks saying, well, you you gave yourself a categorical exemption from doing an environmental impact report, but this trail is in a watershed that has spawning salmon. Uh, you need to do the state equivalent of a NEPA. If you think that California has somehow more relaxed environmental standards than the feds, you are mistaken. Uh, California has incredibly stringent environmental laws, and they what do they mirror? They mirror the federal process. So we've seen this uh, process go from start to end. The Conservation League sued the state. The state said, okay, we're going to do environmental impact report. So they did the environmental impact report. They found that there was no impact, but they did, because of the language, have to work on the trail. So what did they had to improve the trail sight lines. They had to add rock armoring. They had to go through the motions. So what did the Conservation League do? Hey, there's spotted owls there. So now they're saying, okay, you can only work from, I think it's like September 15th to October 30th. That's your work period every year until you can finish these projects. The trail has to stay closed. So now the trail has been closed to the public, I think, since 2012. Um, It's 2016 now, and they plan to open the trail in 2018. So if we do get by – why am I talking about this at all? Well, one of the things that I've heard um, is that – this effort by the STC, our effort, <clears throat> will trigger NEPA. Of course it'll trigger NEPA. NEPA's already been uh, – NEPA's being used right now in Utah to um, stop a trail that is um, being built in an area that isn't even wilderness. 
So um, should we be afraid of NEPA? Absolutely not. Uh, the, the FAA has to deal with NEPA. That, that's aviation, something I know a lot about. They have to comply with NEPA. Um, you know, the, the Department of Transportation, they have to comply with NEPA. NEPA is not a bad thing. NEPA is not something mountain bikers should be afraid of. Um, does it make the process glacial? Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to government. Right. <laughs> you know, if if you wanna if you wanna protect the environment, um, you know it's it's gonna be abused. These these protections are gonna be abused by people who have an agenda. Um, is there is are there efforts? There are legislative efforts right now to streamline NEPA because NEPA was intended to um, stop people from building a dam across a river. Uh, without any doing an environmental impact report. That's that's why the salmon are almost all gone on the West Coast. You know, I I, I grew up fishing for salmon with my dad. You know, I I, lo- I love I love the ocean. You know, am I going to be a jerk about you know? Um, no, let's let's ride our bikes so much that we kill every salmon. No, um, of course not. Um, do I think off road cycling has an impact on on salmon? not really no um but you know if someone wants to point a finger at me and say you can't allow this guy on the trail let's go through the nepa process bring it on because i know that there's going to be a scientist involved now who's not just going to fly off at the handle and say you know um dave simon is is a menace to the environment and the world um that's just not going to happen. They're, they're going to take a hard, cold, hard look at the facts and say exactly what the BLM said. And, and um, re- maybe- realistically, realistically, at some point, even the government is intelligent enough to to look at a collection of of you know uh, of these studies and go, well, let's see. We had this thing in in Marin where um, you know they were spawning spawning salmon in the steelhead and this trail here, and, and there was no measurable environmental. There's no measurable impact from mountain biking here, and and then they'll go and they'll look at uh, you know something up here in Clarksville where you know there was a federal rehabilitation on a stream here to uh, you know prevent erosion to improve the the water quality in the Cumberland River, um, and and there's mountain biking in the park, and there's no measurable uh, effect on 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 all of that process that was done there. In fact, the the maintenance that they've done on the trails has actually helped improve the situation in the entire park, and not just the area immediately surrounding the creek that goes through the park. Um, and and they'll end up with a stack of this eventually, and someone will start screaming, "Oh, they want to put a mountain bike trail over here!" and, and even the government is going to go, you know, we really don't think it's going to have an effect on the water quality uh, in, in this watershed area if they put a mountain bike trail here because of all of these other studies that have been done on something similar. So eventually, even the government is going to go, look, you're just screaming to have something to scream about. We've got a lot of research to back up that this doesn't affect it, so go away. So we have NEPA. The whole point of the environmental impact report, just like you said, the template is it creates um, a programmatic programmatic EIR. It creates um, a template for doing it again. And that's why the Marine Conservation League sued. They saw the writing on the wall and said, you absolutely cannot do this. And they, they, they filed for extensions of the comment period. They've done every single thing in their power. And they know the playbook like the back of their hand. Um, they wrote the playbook. 
in a lot of cases. So they, they are doing every single thing they can to stop this. And they, they failed. So what does that mean for state parks in California? It means that the next time we open a trail, the template's already there. You plug in the formula. Hopefully it reduces the amount of time that it takes to open a trail. Um, that NEPA is, is a friend of mountain biking. Sure. Can it be abused? Absolutely. But when it's abused and then we're vindicated, it can't really be abused again. I mean that the BLM, um, when they're talking about this new trail in, uh, in Moab, they said there's no scientific controversy over the nature of the impacts. I mean, I, I, I can't, <laughs> it doesn't get a whole lot clearer than that. Really. <laughs> it's, it's it's the most clear, and that's coming from an organization that upholds the wilderness ban. I'm sure that if STC unlocks that door, they're going to say, okay, you know, um, we feel like the Maroon Bells in Colorado. Um, that is not a place we should have mountain biking because it's hugely impact, impacted by all kinds of recreational users who are not mountain bikers. There's too many people there already. We can't even control it. You know, we don't want you there um, but in the Boulder white clouds, yeah, we need mountain bikers to keep the, the trails open. So, um, we're going to, we're going to let you ride there. And is someone from the, uh, Sun Valley chapter of the conservation league or whoever, you know, those people are there, um, the Sierra club, they're going to say, Oh, NEPA, NEPA, we need NEPA. Even though they had mountain biking there before, they'll still find some disingenuous way to make it a legal issue. Sure, it'll go to NEPA. The first time it goes to NEPA, it could take up to a decade. But um, you know what? Eventually, we're going to prevail. Um, this is a this is you know you asked me a question: Is a sustainable trails coalition going to be around forever? I hope not. <laughs> but we're going to be we're going to be around, and we're going to calmly talk about the issues. And you know, we're not a bunch of angry. Um, uh, you know, people who can't form alliances, you know, I spent, I spent the day yesterday taking a Marin County parks employee to go see the flow trail we built. Um, I love building partnerships and alliances. That's, I think I'm really good at it. Um, and you know, it's only going to be a matter of time before NEPA and the land managers, um, work together to provide limited access for bicycles in wilderness areas. And, you know, and then there's nothing to have a controversy about. And, and, you know, to the people who are saying like, Oh gosh, you know, this is going to, this is going to, this is going to ruin my solitary experience. You know what? I respect that so much. You know, the, the, the fact that if you see a bicycle, it's going to ruin your day. I actually kind of get that, you know, and, and to those people out there, I would say to you, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. The, the area I go backpacking in the, in the granite, um, the granite outcroppings of the immigrant wilderness, you cannot ride a bike there. <laughs> you know, I ride, I ride, um, cross country mountain bikes. I ride a dirt jumper. I ride a downhill bike. I'm, I'm a fairly decent off-road cyclist. I wouldn't want to have a bike where I go backpacking it would, it would be a terrible hindrance. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, I, I've been, I've been into a wilderness in, in Colorado. That's exactly the same way. It's beautiful. It would suck to try and ride a bike there. You'd be, you'd literally be, um, dropping from five foot rock slab to the next, 
days away from any hospital um, (laughs) (laughs) hours, theoretically wearing, you know, with 60 pounds of gear. Um, That's not technically feasible. And I think it never will be as long as we have non a non motorized restriction in the wilderness. I mean, it's just not going to work. So, you know, my favorite place to go to in the immigrant wilderness is uh, uh, the the Ridge Lake, Iceland Lake area. You hike four hours in on a trail, which is absolutely destroyed because of um, pro- its proximity to the, to the Pacific Crest Trail. And you know, we can talk about that too. But um, you know, I I go in four hours on trail, and then the next four hours are all off on the granite. We just beeline it to a lake. Um, you know, using a sense of direction and a compass, no trails, and it's all on granite. You know, I'm not stepping on lizards or anything either, um, or native plants. But, <clears throat> you know, there's no feasible way to get a mountain bike to that area. And if you had the mountain bike and you got it there, even if you were coming back down the mountain, it would take longer than it would to walk. <laughs> so there is no reason to to worry about mountain bikers running amok everywhere in the wilderness. Um, you, you know, um, it's, it's a hard thing for me to imagine to want that kind of solitude. Usually when I see someone on a multi-day backpacking trip, I say, hello, you know, it's like, um, <laughs> do you have any, you want to trade a chocolate bar for some rum? You know, let, let's, let's make a deal. You know, <laughs> um, I've had great interactions with people I don't know and, um, there's actually a surf spot in a wilderness area. I'm not going to say where, um, and you see these really interested backpackers coming up to you going, wow, this is so cool. How did you get your surfboard and wetsuit here? And, um, you know, it's like, I'm always like, Hey, what kind of food you got? You want to trade me for something? <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 I love having social experiences in the wilderness. I, I think it's really great. But, um, you know, are, are you going to see, hordes of mountain bikers show up in their truck to shuttle in the wilderness. No. (laughs) Yeah. That's not going to happen. It's just, it's so far removed from reality. And I could see people being concerned about it because, you know, what do they, what do they see when they turn on the TV? They see the Red Bull rampage. Now, some of my friends take part in the Red Bull rampage. Um, one of the guys who volunteered at the flow trail, did a backflip over a canyon <laughs> and I watched it all on TV and I was like jumping up and down screaming like I know that guy <laughs> but but uh you know that takes place on on private land and it, it it almost makes me cry every time they go oh Virgin Utah and it's it's um part of the Zion National Park and I'm like what are you guys doing <laughs> stop saying that you know beautiful Zion you know and it's like this is not taking place in the national park. This is taking place on private land. And, you know, the helicopters and the trucks and the crazy ramps they build to do backflips over the, over the, um, the canyons is only occurring because it's in private land. Right. You know, and, and, um, I I hope that brings me, I, I hope this can bring us to the next point. Um, and I know we've been talking for almost two hours, so podcast gold, man, keep on going. <laughs> okay, so um, the the one thing that I think to reassure these people who are like, you know, you're going to let these two wheeled demons into my church, um, you know, one of the things the mountain bike community has never gotten to learn about is the ethic of leave no trace. 
Um, what did, what did I learn when I went on my big backpacking trip for, you know, and, and it was a huge moment in my life when I was a teenager, someone talked my ear off about, here's how you poop in the woods. Here's how you leave no trace. Even the surfing community, we have bumper stickers on all our car that says pack your trash. You know, do you see that with mountain bikers? No, it's, it's, it's a terrible oversight on the part of, of all of us that we don't teach people the leave no trace ethic. You know, the backpackers say leave only footprints, you know, um, and that, that ethic is violated all the time in the wilderness by all kinds of people. But, um, you know, one of the things I would say to people who are really actually scared of cyclists getting into the wilderness is that you're going to give people an opportunity to learn about leave no trace. You're going to give people an opportunity, you know, where someone is like, Oh man, this turn would be way better with a berm on it. And 99% of the time I would say to someone, Oh yeah, you're right. But if we're in a wilderness area, I would say, Hey, leave no trace. You know, I'm sorry, but you know, this, that turn, you might have to walk through the turn cause it's a very awkward switchback or whatever too bad. You know, um, we're not going to, we're going to leave this place. So the, the, the grumpy hiker with the hiking poles who for some reason doesn't like seeing other people when he's completely isolated and alone, um, which is kind of weird personally, but anyway, um, you know, that person should only see your footprints or the, you know, light imprints of your tires. And, and, you know, that means don't ride the trails when they're wet, you know, don't ride the, you know, all the problems we have as a community and our portrayal of ourselves all comes back to leave no trace. And if we can teach people this ethic, if we get this opportunity to have access to just one mile of trail in the wilderness you know, that's actually a role I can see the Sustainable Trails Coalition taking on after we unlock that door. We can hopefully provide some guidance and maybe a PR campaign to the for the cycling industry and for cyclists to say, this is how you manage wilderness access. Uh, this is how this is how we need to behave as a community to respect wilderness. We can never have that conversation in a meaningful way unless we have some wilderness access. So, you know, that, that problem of the blanket ban and locking out one of the fastest growing communities of people who love the environment and the outdoors is you're, we're creating many thousands of new cyclists every year who are fundamentally lacking the tools and the mindset they need to, um, to be stewards of the environment. Um, you know, the wilderness society is, is robbing people of, of the opportunity to learn about why wilderness is important. You know, it's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, we, we really could grow and come so far as a community if we're just given that opportunity. So 
let me uh, let me kind of move a, a little bit towards wrapping this up with with this uh, this question, and, and you you kind of touched on it with uh, like the leave no trace um, and in the bicycle industry. But you know we we we're constantly bombarded with um, these videos, you know, from even bike manufacturers, particularly bike manufacturers, maybe where um, you know we got guys you know hitting berms and and they're throwing roost and you know um what do they call it what do the kids call it these days man brown pow all right um what um you know that's not uh that's that's not the kind of impression that that we want to market to the rest of the um wilderness interest as i refer to it um you know if, if we want to market ourselves as as you know, responsible uh, users of the wilderness. What, what's your take on that? How do we? Where do we start with that? How do we? How do we um, change that 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 paradigm? Yeah, the the slow food movement of mountain biking. Yeah, I mean, so the bike industry. Um, you know, am I going to say th- bad things about the bike industry? Absolutely not. Um, you know, the people who came out to build the uh, trail that. Um, in the, the, the most recent completed trail in Camp Tamarancho, the bike industry was incredibly involved. They donated a bike that we raffled. We raised $10,000. Um, you know, uh, that was Marine, Marine bikes. Um, uh, the hive E 13, uh, Chris Costello of the hive brought his whole office staff to Tamarancho and they did like two or three days of work and, and, you know, these are guys who are getting paid, you know, they're, they're donating their time and, um, they're incredibly organized and hardworking. Cliff Bar did the same thing. They, they brought people out. Um, you know, product was donated by, uh, Gamut USA, Mike's Bikes, you know, all these different groups, you know, and if I missed one, I'm sorry, you know, I went to Sea Otter the year after we completed the trail and I personally thanked every single person, um, you know, and, and the look of shock on people's faces when you walk up to them at Sea Otter and you're not asking for a free hat is pretty cool. <laughs> you know? I'm like, thank you. Thank you for helping us. And, and you know, people would kind of like look at me for a second and, be, you know, like, wait, you don't want a free hat? <laughs> you know, it was it was actually pretty comical. So do I feel a debt of gratitude to the off-road cycling industry? Yeah. I mean, I, I think... I think that there's really wonderful people involved and very conscientious people involved in the, in the off-road cycling industry. Um, do I think that their marketing messaging probably needs a little bit of work? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's some pretty big problems. Um, I've seen the results of those problems. Again, the situation in, in Marin mirrors the situation nationally. Um, you know, what, what do the anti, cycling advocates do when they they want to show the impacts they go for the file footage um provided to them for free by by many different parts of the cycling industry i'm not going to pick on you know i can think of a bunch of there's a bunch of names floating around in my head of the latest series of berm roosting um portrayals you know that you see on these uh these little um bike reviews or or um just kind of excitement generating videos that they, they can put online. Um, you know, pe- people who aren't educated see about off-road cycling, see those videos and it's, it's devastating. 
to, to, you know, in terms of what can happen, the results of what can happen after someone sees a video like that. Um, I've got a great example that we had a very, very anti-bike supervisor who walked into a shop where my friend was working and they had, you know, the Red Bull or Rampage on or, or some mountain bike movie. Um, you know, and she sat there in horror with her jaw dropped and she actually refused to bring her, uh, hybrid city bike to that shop any longer. Um, went down the road where another friend of mine was working in a bike shop and proceeded to have a animated and loud conversation about how horrible mountain bikers were. And, you know, um, that, that, that's just one example of the impact negative impact that one of those videos can have. Um, but then again, you know, people look at a video like that on the surface and I know that, you know, it might be someone's home trail on private property. It, it, you know, the riders and even the video crew, you know, they may have built that trail. So when they roost a berm, you know, it might be the end of the season in the, in the fall and they know they're going to rebuild that berm in the winter. So, you know, are there actually, you know, um, the balance is really tough to find. Cause is there, is there, uh, is there a, uh, actual problem being portrayed in those videos? You know, 99% of the time, absolutely not. You know, that I'm sure there's a management plan and they talk to the trail builders and maybe they donated time or money or product to the people who maintain those trails overall. Like, you know, the, if you looked at some of those videos and, and, and isolated it to a specific one, it might've been a boon for a whole trail system for one of these companies to film their product thing there. You know, they, they might've donated a whole bunch of money to the trail system. Um, but, but I think as individuals, um, you know, and off-road cyclists, we, we need to control our messaging a little bit better. And I think one of the ways we can do that again, comes back to that leave no trace ethic, you know, um, let's think about that a little bit. You know, I know exciting, exciting videos sell bikes and that's the justification for it. But, you know, um, I feel like one of the things that that's missing when I see those videos is really, you know, what's the heart of soul of mountain biking? Why are people getting out? And I think that very few organizations or, um, industry outlets have ever really capitalized or even captured what backcountry cycling is really all about. You know, it's not, it's not exciting. It's not people hucking off of cliffs and stuff because medical help is days away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's contemplative, um, solitude and, and all the reasons that the wilderness society says we shouldn't be there. Um, you know, you could come up with an amazing soulful video that, that portrayed all those things. But, um, you know, you know, it's just like the, the saying, you know, sex sells, you know, um, so, so does exciting portrayals of, of riding bikes. So, I mean, am I upset with the bike industry? Not, not at all. I, I just feel like there's an education component to that. And, and part of that education component is, is part of this wilderness issue. Hey, that's, um, that's probably the most well thought out response I've ever gotten from anyone on that question. Um, most people are either like, no, it's not an issue at all, or, uh, no, they should never do this. And, and, 
I mean, Dave, right up the middle, because it's legit. I know for a fact um, that that some of those are filmed on, you know, private, private tracks, private trails, um, you know, even that are owned by the company. You know, it's like it's on on test grounds that they own, um, you know, and and so um, well thought out. And, you know, on the whole, man, I, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to today to talk to me to to kind of um help expand the the uh the just the general overview of of what the STC is about and and kind of um where all of this controversy shorts you know it, it 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 the controversy is is um it's sort of needless hype it kind of falls apart when you when you look at the details and that's what I really uh want to want to get out there to people is that um you know this whole this whole movement um you know what's been there for years in Imba uh and and you know what is what is new and, and uh, trying to take a different approach to this is all ultimately tied together. Ultimately, it works together. It's all the same community, and uh, and and what we're all chasing is is ultimately the same thing. And that's that's more turns in the woods, uh, more more butts on more bikes, especially you know kids. Um, you know, let's get them out there. Let's let's improve accessibility. And um, and man, I really appreciate you taking the time to to kind of get that across in, in your own way on, on behalf of the STC. Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly available as I'll make myself as, as, as available as I can to reach out to anyone who has questions about STC. Um, one of the ways people can get in touch with me is I have a, I maintain a Facebook page for the flow trail at camp Tamarancho. Pretty easy to find the camp Tamarancho flow trail Facebook page. If you send a message to that, you can get in touch with me. I, I really feel um, a great deal of responsibility and obligation to the people who donated to STC. So um, when I saw that that there was not a voice um, directly from STC on your trailcast, I thought, you know, I, I got to step in and, and at least try to put some of these issues to bed. You know, uh, is, is anyone, you know, I wish I was a famous um, off-road cyclist that people listen to because maybe it would help spread the messaging a little bit further. But Really, um, again, the one thing, if anyone takes away one thing from this entire you know, um, podcast, as a community divided, we will never achieve victory. It, there's just no way we can do it. And, you know, please think about the things you say on social media. Um, you know, am, have I said incorrect things on social media? Yeah, I have. I really screwed up. Um, I got involved with a with an online argument between cyclists in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and an organization called uh, Save Our Canyons. Um, I was wrong. Save Our Canyons seems to be, and I, I don't know for sure, but they seem to actually respect the cycling community. When I went to their webpage, they listed things that are pro- prohibited in wilderness. They didn't list bikes. They excluded it from the list. And I thought, okay, you know, right away I just jumped I jumped to conclusions because because look at where I live. I live in, you know, this area that that we've been manipulated to believe that mountain biking is wrong. And I'm like, here we go again. People in the population pressure in Park City, uh, you know, the population pressure in Salt Lake. It's getting to the point where they're going to try to ban bikes from the trails. And, you know, I didn't know the trail network. Um, that's one of the most difficult things about being a national level 
bike advocate, you know, how could you know every trail in the, you know, I don't even know every trail in Marin County. So, um, you know, and I've lived here my whole life and I was an on-call pilot. My job was literally to carry a phone and go mountain biking for a long time. So you can imagine I got some good trail days in, but, um, you know, I was very wrong. I said some things on social media. I regret, I probably came off looking like an idiot. So, um, you know, other than, uh, if we're community divided, you know, we'll never achieve victory. Think about what you say on social media. Um, think about the people at IMBA who are working so hard every single day to provide you with an opportunity. You know, don't say anything bad about someone like that. You know, they might have a different tactic or strategy. They might, they might be going out at this angle differently from the way one would choose to, but, um, you know, make them a partner. If, if they're for human trails and they're for bikes on those human trails, you know, they're a friend of mine. Awesome. Dave, thanks again. Uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show today and, uh, folks, I'll include a link to the, uh, Tamarantra flow trail Facebook page. Um, if you've got questions for Dave, you know, get in touch with him. If you've got comments about this or questions for me, same thing. Um, Dave, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, thanks for the opportunity anytime. Anytime.